0: This is Grow with the Flow, a podcast about how people change over time, how they adjust what they do to their environment, including other people, and how we can think about this and research this. We will touch upon topics related to developmental psychology, ecological psychology and complex dynamic systems theory. I'm Lisette de jong Hoekstra, and my research is Surprise! related to these three domains. I research how children learn and how they move their hands, their body and how they speak when they learn and act in their environment. In this second episode, I invited Chris Hefner to be my guest. Chris is working on a postdoc at the University of Connecticut, where he studies speech perception. No matter how interesting that is, I invited him because he is also a co-director of the so-called Living Lab. For the Living Lab, the University of Connecticut and the Science Centre at Hartford work together so that real scientists can do real research with real visitors at a also real science museum. I experienced how awesome it is to carry out a study with children at the Science Center, so time to spread the word!
1: It's a very strange thing to go up to someone, ask their age, ask do you speak German, and then say do you want to hunt zombies?
0: The topic of this podcast is science and outreach at the living lab. And yes, it includes hunting zombies.
1: I've been interested in science outreach since I started wanting to be a scientist, Mm. so uh, this started in undergrad for me. I I was working in a couple labs, and I was thinking, you know, wouldn't it be great if we talked to people at the local high school and Mm -hmm. talked to them about the sort of science we're doing? So when I was picking between grad schools, um, I attended the University of Maryland College Park, Um, where one of the things that really drew me to Maryland was just the fact that they had a lot of students and a lot of faculty who are interested in doing science outreach in Mm. general. So they were already doing things where they're going out to middle schools, going out to elementary schools, going out to high schools, and telling people about the sort of research that I do. Um, I'm a language scientist, so I study how language works. Um, That's not something that people really think about in terms of science, in terms of actually doing that in a research context. Mm. Um, So it's really exciting for me to be able to introduce people to that. Um, Then when I was at Maryland, I helped coordinate a conference where we invited people from all over the country, from one person from every Big Ten school for the American listeners. Um, And we had someone come from Ohio State, Laura Wagner, um, who's involved with this outreach that they do at the Science Museum in Columbus, Mm. um, where they have a working science lab within their local science museum, I thought that was the coolest thing ever. I mean, I don't know about you, but I loved science museums growing up.
0: Yeah, it's really great.
1: Um, so I I asked her whether I could come, and so I spent a couple months there um, doing science outreach there and gathering data. And so then when I came to UConn, that was something I wrote into the grant um, that I got in order to come here um, to be doing science outreach in the local science museum here in Hartford.
0: Yeah, it's really also great that you actually put it in a grant. Really exactly. Awesome. And yeah. it's
1: really good. I mean giving evidence that you're going out into the community, you're not just staying within the university. And this is a perfect way to have a broader impact that is also really useful for you as a scientist, because you can gather a lot of data Mm
0: -hmm. really quickly for free. (laughs) And um, this is one thing about just collecting data. Why do you think it is very important for psychologists to uh, engage in science outreach?
1: Yeah, great question. I mean, there's one part of that answer that I think is really important to talk about, which is that it, it's just a good thing to do as a scientist. We need to think of ourselves not just as serving our own needs. Mm-hmm. I mean, as cool as our scientific questions are, <laughs> theoretically, we're doing science because we care about improving the lives of other people. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's really important then to spend time convincing the, those other people that what we do is important. But over and above that, too, one thing I always try to emphasize is just it's also really good for you as a scientist. Um, When I have given talks at conferences or job talks, um, it's really helpful to be able to explain what you're doing in a way that's very simple and direct and quick. And actually, if you're going out to a science museum or you're going out to talk to 10-year-olds in general about what you're doing, you can explain what you're doing to the dean who's going to be approving your hire (laughs) or to other people who are very intelligent people, who are very interested in some facet of science, but who do nothing related to what you're doing. Um, So I think that communication benefit is something that's important. Mm -hmm. And like I said, that funding thing, you really can't put that aside. Um, A lot of funding agencies, at least in the U.S., are really looking for ways that you're making an impact on your community. Um, And uh, doing science outreach is the perfect way to do that. And Doing it within the context of a science museum mm-hmm. is a great way to situate your science in a broader sort of field.
0: So um, you also mentioned that you actually are, of course, you're also talking to people who are coming to a science center. Mm-hmm. And you're explaining it like in, in, in layman's terms, I think. What are people's reactions?
1: Um, people, that's a good question. <laughs> people have a lot of interesting reactions. I mean, to me, as someone really interested in science outreach... One of the benefits and simultaneous challenges of being a language researcher Mm -hmm. is that people really think they know a lot about language. (laughs) And people don't know a lot about language. So they come in with a lot of preconceptions. They come in with the idea, oh, you're going to correct my grammar. You're here to tell me Mm -hmm. that you can't end a sentence with a preposition. Um, So the questions you get, sometimes people ask really great questions about you know, is bilingualism good or bad? Or, mm. or um, what's the best age to start teaching a language to a kid? And I always tell them, as young as you possibly can. Mm. But people sometimes also say things like, why is English getting worse? And you have to take a step back and say, well... Um, it's just changing. As oh, yeah. a scientist, I can't say it's getting worse or better. Mm-hmm. I just say that it's changing. And for some people, they say, oh, okay, that's really interesting. And other people really get hung up on the idea that emojis are ruining the, the mm-hmm. English language. <laughs> um, so you get all sorts of different reactions. Um, but what's fun, too, is just uh, interacting with kids versus parents. The kids are often much more receptive and much more open to what you're telling them, and their parents take a little bit more convincing. So that's a fun dynamic.
0: I can imagine. (laughs) Do you also get questions from kids?
1: Yes, oh, absolutely. Um, You know, a lot of times, uh, it's even more than just questions. Kids are just amazed that there's this science that Mm. they've never heard about before. Um, And for some of them, I know I've had really great experiences where um i remember at one career fair i went to um this mother and daughter combo came up mm-hmm. and the daughter was clearly sort of being pushed towards the table by the mom <laughs> and the daughter was like i i really like languages my favorite thing in latin is to learn different declensions and i was like oh, you're one of us <laughs> <laughs> and she just got to make this connection of her interests in languages Ooh. And she really liked physics, and I was like, oh, let me tell you, like I deal with physics all the time. I look at phonetics, I looked mm. at waves and things like that. And and from kids, it's often just a sort of sense of wonder and interest in this thing that they've never heard about before, and they sort of think, like, why, why haven't my teachers ever told me about this, or things like that? And I kind of have to say, well, you can't really learn about it in school for a long time, but keep <laughs> thinking about this, and keep working on your classes. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I think it also means that you are are like this kind of person who they don't think a scientist is, but then you actually see him like in real life. And
1: Yeah, I think that really helps. I think that's one great thing about being in a science museum context. Usually, um, I mean, I love science museums so much, but mm-hmm. often they involve a lot of sort of static exhibits where you're going and you're reading descriptions and you're interacting with things that are going on. You're making a tornado, you're doing mm-hmm. fun things like that. Um, but you never get really get to see the people who are doing the research behind the scenes. So one of the great things about this sort of model of doing science outreach and doing science experiments in a museum is that then not only do they have experience with this realm of science they've never heard about before, mm-hmm. but they can actually talk to a scientist and ask questions and and learn that scientists were maybe sort of funny and offbeat, but were not... People who sit in behind desks and lab coats, or you know, look at test tubes, um, and that they can experience scientific questions that they've never heard of before.
0: Mm. So we very smoothly go into my next question because that is why I actually do research at a science center.
1: Yeah, so that's one of the great things about this living lab model. Mm-hmm. So the living lab was started um, in Boston um, at their um, Museum of Science. Mm-hmm. And in that case, um, what they really wanted to do is not just have scientists going out to the museum and talking about science, but actually doing science experiments. Mm -hmm. So, um, And that sort of model has been sent around the world to lots of different places, and that's what we're doing here at UConn, is that people are doing um, real science research. So um, from the researcher perspective then, Um, This gives you access to a population that you wouldn't normally have. Normally, in developmental research, you're dependent on parents bringing their kids to campus. Usually those parents are involved with the university, their professors, Mm -hmm. their staff, their administrators, kids, who are sort of a different population from um, even, you know, folks in the community at large. So, by going out into the community, you're getting a much more diverse group of people. At a science museum, they are all going to be kids who are interested in science, so they're still not quite random. Mm. But they might be people who live in the area, who are there on vacation. That's what we found a lot in Ohio, is a lot of it were people who were just visiting Columbus, and were like, what do we do in Columbus, Ohio? And we said, oh, let's go to the science
0: museum. Well, we have kids, yeah. Yeah,
1: And so you get a really great, diverse group of people, um, generally speaking, these models also prohibit payment. You are not supposed to pay people. the participation is its own reward, so it's very cheap to yes. have free or you know just a toy as a compensation for participation mm-hmm. um, and you get people who are very excited about doing these experiments and from the perspective of the visitors, this is a once in a like they will probably have never encountered something like this before. Mm-hmm. This is something that's really cool. They get to talk to a scientist. They get to do a science experiment. They get to learn that science experiments aren't just sort of like tests. I keep mentioning test tubes. There's nothing wrong with test tubes. But, you know, it broadens their idea of what mm-hmm. a science experiment is like. Um, and from the museum's perspective, it gives them a chance to um, have some really interactive things going on. So from all every perspective, it's a great thing to be doing.
0: Yeah. And um because you've conducted several studies at the Science Center right mm-hmm. How does it actually work? <laughs> doing yeah. science at the science Center?
1: <laughs> it comes with a lot of fun constraints and fun things mm-hmm. you never have to think about when you're when you're working at a um, on a campus so like when I was in Ohio I performed an experiment um, where the first thing you have to do before you do anything else is just construct an experiment that's going to be fun
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you obviously have to do that when you're on a campus but Once they come to the campus, to some extent, if they're already in the room, you can sort of make them do whatever boring thing you want them to do. (laughs) Um, In a science center, there's all sorts of things going on around them. There's other exhibits. There's other things they want to do. They want to play. They want to have fun. If what you're doing isn't fun, then they're not going to want to participate. So what I did is I I created an experiment where people were hunting zombies, and that was very fun for (laughs) people to do. (laughs) So I would go up to them. I would have a lab coat. It helps to have a little bit of a uniform to say that I'm something, someone special. I'm not just some other visitor who's wandering up to them, but mm-hmm. I'm someone special. So I went up with my lab coat and my clipboard, and I said, do you want to hunt zombies? And many people said, yes, I would like to hunt zombies. Then what I would do is I'd bring them back into our space mm-hmm. where there are some computers set up, um, and I would sort of have them fill out a consent form and then they would perform the experiment. Um, one Another constraint is to make sure it's about 20 minutes or so. is probably the mm-hmm. longest you want. So there are some time constraints because you want to make sure people are wandering around the museum and seeing everything. And they're going to get bored very quickly. Mm. Um, and then in the end, I sort of gave them a quick debriefing and walked them out of the room and let them back into the museum. So really the biggest constraint is just getting over that hurdle of going up to people um, who you don't know. <laughs> And just getting over that hurdle of saying, yes, I just need to talk to this person and try to convince them to do something. But the nice thing is these people are in a science museum. They paid to go there. They're clearly invested in mm-hmm. science. So generally speaking, if you give them an opportunity to participate in science themselves, they're going to get very excited by that. Um, so I would say about you know, half the time I was able to get people to sign up or at least express interest. You, know, you need to screen them a little bit and make sure they're in the age range you're interested in or they mm-hmm. have... They, for me, it was important that they didn't speak German at all. Um, didn't
0: speak Dr- okay, because, because they can, Germans can't turn zombies. Why? No, because <laughs>
1: the the experiment that we were doing involved training people to categorize German ah, speech sounds. Okay. So, yeah, so it's <laughs> nothing about German speakers in general. But these are the things you have to sort of think about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it was a lot of fun to do.
0: Mm. <laughs> Because you talked about constraints, um, so um, making a fun task a, not longer than 20 minutes. Um, also, uh, you have to actually get up to people, invite them, mm-hmm. say intriguing things about <laughs> your room and age and the uh, hunting zombies, and then you can probably lure them into the room. Right. Um, I also had a question from a researcher who actually doing research in virtual reality and locomotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was wondering, um, what are like the boundary conditions of studies that you can conduct over there at mm-hmm. the Science Center at Hartford at least?
1: Yeah, so that's going to depend a lot on the individual space and the individual museum. So um, different museums have different constraints about what they're okay with you doing and what they're not okay mm-hmm. with you doing. So one thing that um, the Connecticut Science Center just changed recently... Um, is video recording. So previously they were sort of on the fence about whether they were okay with that, Mm -hmm. but then they had some internal discussions and they decided it was totally okay as long as you got specific consent from the Mm -hmm. families who were coming in. So I would say that's something that would need to be talked about in discussion with the museum that'd be hosting you. Um, In general though, I would say it's pretty freeform and what the museum is especially looking for is things that families are going to want to talk about and get excited about. Mm -hmm. So something like virtual reality, what kid would not want to do something virtual reality? (laughs) Like, that would be awesome. Um, So I have a feeling that the museum would really try to work to make sure that they have the space and the facility to accommodate you. Now, a lot of it's going to be practical constraints on that. So depending on the equipment you have to use or things like that, Um, we're lucky enough at the Connecticut Science Center and... Um, the, science of, the Center of Science and Industry in Ohio also had this ability to be able to keep things on site okay. um, in locked rooms in closed away so you wouldn't ever have to be stressed out about people using equipment who shouldn't be using it or things mm-hmm. like that. Um, depending on your equipment and your constraints, if you're having to take really heavy stuff there and back every day, you might not want to use the space just because of that practical concern. But we have someone at the center of, science, or of the Connecticut Science Center here in Hartford who has been bringing in a portable eye tracker in the science center every time they go in. I wouldn't do that myself, um, but she is amazing <laughs> um, and is willing to do that. So it's really a lot of it's just up to the, your own practical constraints and the constraints of the museum. Generally speaking, though, they're going to be very excited about really cool interactive stuff. I, I think there's not too many constraints when it comes down to it. Obviously, if it was more than a minimal risk study or anything like that, then no way. Um,
0: That's a good thing to add. Right? Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> then, yeah, if you're taking blood samples or things like that, do not do that. No. Um, but if it's a generally low-risk study, then I think most museums are going to try to accommodate whatever they can, as long as you have the space to do
0: it. Um, what um, equipment do you have on site?
1: Yeah, so that um, might be something that you're going to have to get yourself. So some of how I'm the co-director of this um, collaboration Mm -hmm. that we have is because I secured some internal funding to buy things like laptops, headphones, um, USB cables, Mm -hmm. uh, everything you would need for a lot of basic behavioral um, research. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's really great um, to have that sort of stuff on site so then... Researchers don't have to be hauling their laptop every time mm-hmm. to, the, to the center. At the same time, though, um, there's generally not going to be a lot that the Science Center itself can offer just because they're not used to having these this research there. Mm-hmm. So that's why I would say it's good if you're thinking you're going to make this an important part of your research, and especially if you're going to be collaborating with a lot of other labs mm-hmm. to do research on the site to try to secure some internal funding. You generally don't need a lot. Um, But we found it's helpful to have some of those office supplies and just the basics around. Um, Another thing to do, like I said, is some sort of uniform, something that sets you apart from other visitors and from other museum staff, just to make it clear, you know, when you're going up to these people to try to encourage them to participate in your study that you're not just someone wandering around. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say those are some pieces of equipment that I think that would be very helpful. What we're hoping to do at this Connecticut Science Centre, we have... Um, so we're planning on doing tie-dyed lab coats. So we have the lab coats now. and We just mm. need to tie-dye them to make them fun colors. Mm. So the lab coat has a little bit of that scientific cachet, but then the fun color tie-dye means that we're cool
0: scientists. <laughs> it's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was wondering, do you have, like, a real-life example from your own studies? Um, when you had the idea, like, okay, I'm here at the science center, I'm, I'm doing science outreach, outreach, I'm talking to people. Do you thought it really made a difference in how people perceive science?
1: Um, in person, I would say um, the best examples are specific kids, especially sort of high school and middle school age kids. So we're talking between the ages of, let's say, 12 to 18, mm-hmm. um, who haven't heard about the sort of research that we're doing as a scientific enterprise, mm-hmm. but it sort of changes their idea of what scientific endeavors are out there. So the example I gave earlier of this high um, high school maybe 14 15 year old Mm
0: -hmm. who loved
1: latin declensions Mm -hmm. um, and loved like wave physics um was a good example of that where i was able to say hey there's this field that combines those things together there's linguistics there's phonetics there's um audiology and speech pathology um that's a good example of the sort of change that you can see um some of it too is i found with adults um is with um, especially adults who are coming in who are bilingual themselves. I've noticed a lot of questions about bilingualism and mm-hmm. multilingualism. And in the U.S., um, we're an aggressively monolingual country. So bilingual people often, they often hear a lot about themselves that might not be scientifically supported. And they're often worried, you know, should I teach my kids Spanish? Should I teach my kids Mandarin?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Or... Um, you know, how will this affect my child? And one thing that I've been able to be happy to share with them is that this isn't a bad thing at all. This is a very good thing. This is a great gift you can give to your kid. Maybe your kid will be a little bit slower at learning the vocabulary of English, Mm -hmm. but that's about it. (laughs) Yeah. And otherwise, this can only be a good thing. And seeing the sort of relief I get about that, um, is a really nice thing to see. So that's another example of a change that I've been able to see in person. But I'd love to hear more, and I'd love to learn more about how we might be able to follow up more effectively with these groups. Um, I heard when I was at a conference last year, I heard an example of this where they gave them a postcard when they were leaving, they had them write down what they learned, then they had people deposit it mm-hmm. with the researchers, and then the researchers sent it to them, like six months later, and said, remember when you learned this thing, as just sort of a follow-up, but
0: yeah.
1: I've just been learning.
0: Because <laughs> um, I can imagine, like, this question from bilingualism, that isn't something that you expect when you actually go there and do, do research, right? Mm-hmm. How do you actually prepare just to be in, like, this role of scientist at a <laughs> science center? Yeah,
1: yeah good question. Um, I think a lot of it just comes from... Uh, getting experience with this in various sort of smaller ways. So, Mm -hmm. uh, believe it or not, every time that you have to sit down, it was just the holidays, so every time you have to sit down over Christmas dinner and explain to your uncle what you do Mm -hmm. prepares you for this sort of thing. Because even though as much as you roll your eyes, because you've told your uncle this every year for a decade, (laughs) what you do... Um, You get better every time. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's sort of just get into that mindset of you're explaining it to someone who doesn't really know much about your specific scientific field, but is curious and Mm -hmm. wants to know more. So a lot of it is just getting yourself into that place of uncle-speak. Another thing to prepare um, is just get ready for a lot related to your field. So Mm -hmm. I don't study bilingualism. So bilingualism is a great example. I don't study bilingualism. That's not a major focus of my research. I think it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. So just think back to, especially your undergrad training, I think is a very good place to start from. Mm -hmm. Because generally speaking, in your undergrad, you're getting a little bit of exposure to a lot of different fields. So just think back to what you learned about then, what studies you found interesting. Because those are going to be the kind of things that people find interesting outside the field. They're not going to be asking questions. No one asks me questions about different models of category learning, which is something...
0: Too bad. (laughs) I know. It's
1: a shame. Everyone loves talking about (laughs) exemplar-based models of phonetic category learning, but no one knows that much in detail. So get prepared just for those questions about, oh, you study language, uh... I have a kid who has tubes in his ears. What does that mean? Um, And get prepared for those sort of applied questions and focus, especially one question that you're going to get in various forms over and over again is why should I care about your research or about this field in general? Mm -hmm. And people don't generally mean that in a mean way. Like they're just honestly curious. I don't know what linguistics is. I don't know what dynamical systems are. Mm -hmm. Um, What why should it be like? Why should it be funded? What health applications does it have? Just go to the big three is what I always go to. Go to health, go to technology, and go to teaching. Find some way to connect it to each of those things, and people will generally be like, "Oh, okay, that sounds really interesting. I'm glad you're doing that."
0: That's a very helpful tip, Abel. <laughs> it's a life lesson I learned just now. Thank you. <laughs> um, do you have, may have any other tips for people who want to do research at a science center?
1: Yeah, I think one important thing to think about is just how to get into the science centers in the first place. How do you make the pitch to the museums? Um, So we've talked a lot about how um, researchers can benefit and a lot about how um, the people in the museums can benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's also important to just spend some time thinking about how the museums benefit. So they're getting this cool interactive demo with a real scientist in the museum, mm-hmm. that they don't have to pay that scientist anything. This isn't an employee. This nope. isn't anything like that. Um, the museums really do benefit from these sort of collaborations with the local um, community. Mm-hmm. They also they see it as something that builds up their prestige too. Uh, when I was in Ohio, I was collaborating with Ohio's the sorry. I was collaborating with the Ohio State University. And they're very particular about that word at the beginning. I'm a, I'm a grad of a rival school, so I make sure to make fun of them for that. But that said, <laughs> in Ohio and in Columbus, the Ohio State University is a big deal. So the the fact that there are researchers from OSU who uh-huh. are in the Science Center is really cool to visitors. The same is true here at the Connecticut Science Center. So people love UConn around the state of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So when they come and they see UConn is there, then the museum gets this prestige associated with the university Mm -hmm. because people are so passionate about it. So I would say um, when you're thinking about setting up these collaborations, that's one thing to really emphasize the museum. Depending on what's going on at your local museum, they might have heard of things like that. They might not have heard of things like this. And if they're on, if they haven't heard a lot about it, they might say, "Why would we let people into our museum and use the space for this purpose?" Well, it turns out there's a lot of benefits to the museum as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so this prestige, this interactivity, this getting real scientists in, and introducing people to a realm of science they haven't really heard about before—these are all things that the museum will find really appealing too. Um, so that's one thing I'd also emphasize. It's just. Think about how it benefits everyone who's involved and Mm -hmm. that can help you make a better pitch for getting other people involved.
0: Yeah. You, of course, also have different levels. You have individual research, but you also have university level. And I think that the way that you are now interacting with the Science Centre in Hartford, how this collaboration is existing is because this is like university level. Right. Do you have any tips for universities who want to set up these kind of (laughs) collaborations? Or maybe just how to, um, to have all these different levels and how make
1: it work. -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of tough. That's been something I've been thinking about a lot um, has been how to do that because um, at UConn there were individual connections between individual labs in the science center Mm -hmm. but it hadn't really been um, boosted up to sort of the university level to get a lot of different labs involved in this collaboration. So, um, I would say a lot of the way to make that appealing to people is to offer things like equipment and to use this group of labs as a way to um, uh, create internal grants and internal mm-hmm. funding opportunities. Um, there are ways that pooling resources, you can get things done that you can't do when it's just on a lab-by-lab basis. I think a lot of that has to come from bottom-up support, though. Like, I, I am not a university administrator. I'm just a postdoc. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really important that that comes from the community and comes from community priorities, At the same time, I think it's also really good to have folks who are more institutionally tied um, be involved in that work. So I think, for example, grad students are often people who would be involved in gathering data and things like that. Mm -hmm. At the Science Centre, I think it's a great place for grad students to be involved. But having some formal administrator or having a tenure-track faculty member who's involved, who's more permanent, I think is also really important for saying... We're going to keep some of this institutional knowledge around and keep it going. So I'd say for getting invo- um, getting this involved more at the university level, rely on existing peer-to-peer networks um, and go from sort of bottom-up, go from researchers in the individual research level at first mm-hmm. and then expand from there. At the same time, once it starts expanding, get someone who's more strongly tied to the university to buy in as well so that you can keep this knowledge and this expertise you